evangelism. The Great Commission is so important, which is why people get very upset when it's done differently or wrongly or not according to what the Bible teaches. Sovereignty of God, arguably the greatest of all the great doctrines. And people do argue about it. What does it mean? Does it mean that I'm a robot? How does it change our lives? Why should we do anything when God is in control of everything? Put evangelism and sovereignty of God together, and it's like the fusion of two atoms. You get a tremendous release of energy that can either power up or destroy your faith. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, 122 pages, published by InterVarsity Press. The first edition was published in 1961. You can get the 2012 edition via Amazon for $10.25 or via Logos.com for $9.99. Don't have 10 bucks to spare? Well, that's a pity because it was only $1.99 a few weeks ago. To make sure you don't miss out on great book deals, subscribe to this podcast or follow me at Twitter. You can find details at www.readingandreaders.com. That's www.readingandreaders.com. J.I. Packer passed away in 2020 at the age of 93 years old. He wrote Knowing God. He revived the Puritans and gave us the ESV Bible translation. In my mind, if you ask me to describe J.I. Packer, I would say he is the theological equivalent of an explosive engineer or bomb expert. Wherever there is a theological controversy, there he is, calmly, precisely diffusing the bomb. And by careful design, he channels all that destructive energy and puts it to good use. I'll give you one example. One of the hottest topics in the recent past is the charismatic Pentecostal movement. It was so hot that churches were splitting left and right. Marriages were broken. I don't think that is an exaggeration. Parents and children were, were separating because of this issue. Yet, any hothead, regardless of where he stands on the issue, will find good sense in Packer's book on this topic, Keep in Step with the Spirit. In this book, he shows us how he has the uncanny ability to describe the issue in a fair way, uh, to bring out the essence of the debate, and to channel all that energy towards mutual edification. I went to the book feeling very confused, and I left the book feeling very affirmed in my faith. So evangelism and sovereignty of God are as explosive as any doctrines can be. But under J.I. Packer's pen, evangelism and divine sovereignty come together in a way that shines forth the glory of our awesome God. Let me read an excerpt from the first chapter titled Divine Sovereignty. I quote, I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in his world. There is no need, for I know that if you are a Christian, you believe this already. How do I know that? 
Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have had already and all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. End quote. When Packer says, I do not intend, we hear his strong voice coming out of the pages. He knows where the issue lies, and here he believes that every Christian, whether they admit it or not, in their heart of hearts, know that God is sovereign simply because they pray, simply because they credit God for their salvation. Now, I find Packer here to be generous to a fault. While no Christian would ever deny the sovereignty of God, people have a different definition of what sovereignty of God means. And those who deny it, uh, in our, um, from our perspective, basically deny that God has absolute control over all creation. But why do they deny it? Now, Packer writes, I quote, The root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church. The intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men, and the consequent subjecting of scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. People see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for, the, for his actions. They do not see, man indeed cannot see, how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over those actions. They are not content to let the two truths live side by side as they do in the scriptures, but jump to the conclusion that, in order to uphold the biblical truth of human responsibility, they are bound to reject the equally biblical and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great numbers of texts that teach it. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries is natural to our perverse minds, and it is not surprising that even good people should fall victim to it. Hence, this persistent and troublesome dispute. The irony of the situation, however, is that when we ask how the two sides pray, it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe in it just as strongly as those who affirm it. End quote. There is much more to chapter 1, but uh, Packer concludes that chapter by fervently asserting that those who deny God, sovereignty of God actually do believe it. And he knows uh, what is the sticking point for those who deny. If God is always in control, how can humans be responsible for their actions? And that is the topic uh, Packer unpacks in chapter 2. As I read through this uh, second chapter, I find myself sympathetic to uh, Packer's attempts to convince the reader of the truth, of both truths. For it took me quite a few years to reach what Packer hopes to achieve in just a few moments, to just read these pages uh, and be convinced of what it took me reading the whole Bible to be convinced of. And the truth is, well, let's listen to how Packer puts it. I quote, 
God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught to us side by side in the same Bible. Sometimes, indeed, in the same text. Both are thus guaranteed to us by the same divine authority. Both, therefore, are true. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. Man is a responsible moral agent, though he is also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality, and man's responsibility is a reality too. End quote. Packer recognizes that it sounds like a contradiction. He calls it an antimony. But rather than attempt to solve the supposed contradiction, Packer attempts to convince us that what we really need is to know God is wise in ways that we are not. What we see as a problem is not a problem in the mind and counsel of God. What would be wise for us is to accept this is the way it is and that we should work with what we got. But we don't. We are tempted to only focus on human responsibility. Or in the other extreme, we only focus on divine sovereignty. And Packer shows us in this chapter the folly of falling into such temptations. Instead, what we should do is, as Packer says, I quote, we should try to, try to take both doctrines perfectly seriously as the Bible does and to view them in their positive biblical relationship. We, should, we shall not oppose them to each other, for the Bible does not oppose them to each other, nor shall we qualify or modify or water down either of them in terms of the other, for this is not what the Bible does either. What the Bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and most unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. This, therefore, is the position that we must take in our own thinking. End quote. As I revisit this controversy, and I think not for the last time, I thought of an illustration. Now, have you been to a 3D cinema where if you have to put on where you have to put on glasses, okay, these are spectacles, to see the 3D images pop out from the screen. If you try to look at that image with only your left eye, you will not see the 3D image. Same goes if you try looking with only your right eye. You need to look with both eyes to see the image pop in front of you. But the natural man is blind when it comes to reality. Or partially blind, whether in one eye or both. And the solution here is to train our eyes, to strengthen our eyes so that we can see. And the only way to do that is to read and study the whole counsel of God so that we can see with both eyes the reality of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We have not talked about evangelism yet, so let's go to that topic in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is, to me, the most surprising chapter of the book. 60 years after this book, and still, the questions Packer poses here are as relevant as ever. What is evangelism? What is the evangelistic message? Why do we do it? And how should we do it? The chapter is surprising because it somehow scratches an itch I've had for a while, and Packer managed to describe the itch and also give me the relief. 
I have had some misgivings for a while on evangelistic rallies, but I never sat down to arrange my thoughts on the subject, partly because everybody else accepts it. They accepted it as a good thing, they've accepted it for a long time. To question evangelistic rallies would be to question the work of people, servants of God, like Billy Graham, and to question such faithful servants of the Lord seems petty and mean. So I never got around to do it because, well, the outcome seems to be very good. People go to these rallies and they hear the word of God and many of them, not all of them, um, come to be converted. They come to, to believe in Jesus as a Lord and Savior. And while not all do, many of them do continue on towards a lifelong journey of discipleship, of closely following the Lord Jesus. So with that in mind, I mean, how, why would we want to critique uh, evangelistic rallies? But that's exactly what Packer does. I don't know what is Packer's opinion of Billy Graham's ministry, but this book, I noticed, was published in 1961, six years after Billy Graham launched a big evangelistic rally in London. So if I was to imagine it, I suppose in the wake of Billy Graham's evangelistic rallies, and with all the energy that is being poured into these type of rallies to draw big crowds, I'm sure that many people are thinking that this is the only way, or this is the best way to reach out to people, to bring people to Christ. And I think it was in that sort of atmosphere, uh, these, uh, a lot of energy, a lot of heat going towards rallies, uh, that Packer writes this, I quote, If in our churches, evangelistic meetings and evangelistic sermons are thought of as special occasions, different from the ordinary run of things, it is a damning indictment of our normal Sunday services. So that if we should imagine that the essential work of evangelism lies in holding meetings of the special type described out of, office, out of church hours, so to speak, that would simply prove that we had failed to understand what our regular Sunday services are for. End quote. Phew. And um, there's more to this, <laughs> where he uses very strong words. Um, but... <clears throat> But before you misunderstand, uh, Packer does not actually condemn evangelistic rallies, he, nor does he just list the pros and cons. That's another thing that many of us, in seeking to be fair, in seeking to be uh, objective, we list the pros and cons. Instead, what Packer does is he looks at the essence of the matter and gives us, for example, this wonderful gem. I quote, Evangelism is not Sorry, <clears throat> let me start again. Evangelism is to be defined not institutionally in terms of the kind of meeting held, but theologically in terms of what is taught and for what purpose. End quote. I think this is a brilliant way to focus everybody's attention, energy, focus everybody's energy towards the real issue at stake. Let's not talk about the institution. How do we do it? how long, uh, how, how many songs, the altar call, and so on. But theologically, how, what is taught and for what purpose? Ah, this is so, so much clarity being offered here by Packer. And there are whole pages here that I would love to read to you, or I would love for you to read for yourself. Pages of method methodical uh, uh, reasoning 
and also a list of thought-provoking questions that every Christian in thinking about evangelistic rallies should consider. I can't read pages for you, but let me just read to you two paragraphs. I quote, So in the last analysis, there is only one method of evangelism, namely the faithful explanation and application of the gospel message, from which it follows, and this is the key principle which we are seeking, that the test for any proposed strategy, technique, or style of evangelistic action must be this. Will it, in fact, serve the word? Is it calculated to be a means of explaining the gospel truly and fully and applying it deeply and exactly to the extent to which it is so calculated it is lawful and right, to the extent to which it tends to overlay and obscure the realities of the message and to blunt the edge of their application, it is ungodly and wrong." Now, this is the tail end, as I'm sure you can see, of a long argument. And essentially, he's saying that the evangelistic rally can be a bit simplistic. They may so focus on the saviour component that they do not mention, but much, much less stress, the lordship, the, the following of Jesus, the lifelong obedience to the word. So, um, so here, Packer is very careful to say that there is a way that we can evangelize which is actually wrong, which is even... He uses the word dangerous. Okay, let me quote. We need to remember here that spiritually it is even more dangerous for a man whose conscience is roused to make a misconceived response to the gospel and take up with a defective religious practice than for him to make no response at all. If you turn a publican into a Pharisee, you make his condition worse, not better. End quote. That's a nice turn of phrase. If you turn a publican into a Pharisee, you make his condition worse, not better. And how are our misguided efforts to evangelize to blame? Well, at its root, it's because we don't know what is evangelism. And for that, for the details, you have to read the book. Before I go into the fourth and final chapter, just a brief recap. Chapter 1 confirms that we all believe in divine sovereignty. Chapter 2 assures us that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both true, and we should never, never pit one against the other. Chapter 3 brings us to the heart of evangelism. Now in chapter 4, how does um, everything come together? God controls everything, including man's ability to respond to his call, yet he also commands us to make that invitation to people. Since God has absolute sovereignty over everything, why should we bother? And that's the focus of chapter 4. And I think the force of the argument in chapter 4 does not really work unless you have read and appreciated chapter 1, 2, and 3. Nevertheless, this is how Packer puts it. The biblical answer may be stated in two propositions, one negative and one positive. The negative proposition is, I quote, The sovereignty of God in grace does not affect anything that we have said about the nature and duty of evangelism. End quote. Now the key here is the relationship between sovereignty of God, the divine sovereignty doctrine, and the, the word evangelism. Okay? So we have two concepts, how does the two things relate? And he breaks down that negative 
proposition into subsection. So he gives us four subsections, and they are titled first, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the necessity of evangelism. Number two, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the urgency of evangelism. Number three, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the genuineness of the gospel invitations or the truth of the gospel promises. Number four, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the responsibility of the sinner for his reaction to the gospel. So each of those parts explains in, in ways, in Packer's powerful and concise ways, um, how the negative statement, the negative proposition works. The sovereignty of God in grace does not affect anything that we have said about the nature and duty of evangelism. The positive proposition is the sovereignty of God in grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. Packer believes that if we are certain, if we are confident that God is in control, absolute control, this will make us bold, patient, and prayerful in our evangelism. He ends the book on a prayer note, and as we, if we can remember, uh, he began the book with a with a word, with a comment on prayer, that those who pray are those who believe that God is sovereign. And, uh, and he ends the book by saying that those who believe that God is sovereign are those who pray. <laughs> so it is, uh, it, the book uh, starts and ends in a very powerful note. It makes us uh, lean more on God. I've also said in the beginning that Packer is the, in my mind, the theological equivalent of a bomb expert because of how calmly, how precisely he deals with these explosive topics. I mean, his final chapter, he, he says that there's a positive proposition, a negative proposition, and then he breaks it down again. So a very precise way um, of uh, going about on this very dangerous, uh, treacherous uh, debates. So I do appreciate his, uh, his approach. So it's not so uh, polemic. It's not so uh, drawing or trying to uh, stir up emotions. So I, I really do appreciate what he's doing over here. Yet, we can also see that even if he doesn't stir up the emotions, he is very firm in his belief. He, he, is, uh, he truly believes that uh, understanding divine sovereignty in its proper context would actually help the Christian and would actually help in our evangelism. So there is... Uh, there's no wishy-washy, uh, there's firmness, but that firmness doesn't bring out fire, flames uh, in us. Now, I didn't realize when I started uh, this uh, review that when I said that Packer was a bomb expert, when I described these topics as explosions, I didn't realize what a good uh, illustration that it was, actually. <laughs> For it got me thinking... Um, as I was writing, I was trying to describe how big the explosion is and what is the most explosive thing in our solar system. Okay, And when I was thinking about it, trying to describe as a writer, as a reviewer, you know, thinking about dynamite, C4, and naturally, um, the nuclear bomb. But the answer is not the nuclear bomb. I mean, the answer is hinted in my question uh, to you. Uh, what is the most explosive thing in our solar system. And really, in our solar system, uh, the sun is this 
giant ball of fire. It is a perpetual chain of nuclear explosions going off one after the other from the very beginning of time. And it's so powerful. Any one of these gigantic explosions is enough to destroy all life on Earth many times over. Yet, paradoxically, or is it ironically? I'm not sure how to describe it. The same energy that can destroy all life on Earth so easily is also the source of all life on Earth. It is the source of heat and light. It is the source of of how we get our trees, we can get oxygen to breathe, how we can start the morning to greet the dawn. And so I think that just as it's true that the sun is the source of uh, so many explosions, is a source of life, I think it's also true for these doctrines. We sometimes try to figure out how they work. And sometimes our efforts end up well, sometimes not. Sometimes there's a lot more. That energy goes into a lot more explosions in the sense that it breaks people up. But we should really not forget that the doctrines we are trying to express, that we're trying to understand, are expressing something greater than us. They are expressing a reality uh, about God that to a certain extent will always, always be beyond us. There is always a level of mystery that we can never peer into on this side of time. And the wonderful thing about Packer is that he reminds us of these truths in this book. And it is no wonder that it is considered a Packer classic. And I would recommend this book to anybody who is struggling with the idea of um, evangelism and uh, divine sovereignty. It is not really a defense on divine sovereignty, if that is what you're looking for. That, that's not the purpose of this book. It is a short book, 122 pages, and it deals in a very methodical way, okay, step by step, breaking it down. What is the relationship? And how do we answer the question? If God is sovereign, then why should we do anything if God is in control of everything, why should we try? And I think after reading this book, you will be, I hope, assured that God is indeed sovereign and we are indeed meant to share this glorious God of ours. This is a Reading and Readers review of Evangelism and Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. 122 pages, published by InterVarsity Press. The first edition was published in 1961, but you can get the 2012 edition via Amazon or Logos for around $10. Now, if you are interested, you can also um, subscribe to this podcast. And uh, the next book I tend to review is After Acts. So it's a book about um, what the apostles did after the close of the Bible. And I think it's an interesting book. It's also available at, for free in Logos. So that's why I'm mentioning it now. So uh, it's one week until the end of November. So if you're interested to know, you know what happened to Paul after, uh, because it never mentions it in the Bible. What happened to Peter? What happened to John? If you're interested in these questions, um, 
I suggest you download the free book, the free book from Logos, while it is still November. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.